Hey guys, it's Keith. So let's start by talking about this really funny movie from 2011 called Our Idiot Brother. This is peak Paul Rudd era after Wanderlust, or I guess just before Wanderlust. His two best movies, I think. Uh, in this one, he plays this hippie character who's just super chill and, you know, easygoing and just like a really cool guy, you know, kind of like, a you know, a stoner character. And in this movie, he's just down with everything, super go with the flow. And he finds himself with a couple and they flirt with him and they basically proposition him for a threesome. And he's going with the flow he's maybe curious maybe interested but it's not clear and they're in bed and the guy is really putting the moves on paul rudd's character and the girlfriend is like egging it on encouraging it and paul rudd is kind of trying to go for the girl but she's more interested in seeing the guys together and the boyfriend of the girl is also really interested in paul rudd and he's kind of squeamish and like acting odd and not into it you know and he's trying to go along with it like they're getting they're getting undressed and it's getting heavier and eventually he's like i'm sorry i'm sorry guys i can't do it i can't do it i'm just not uh i'm not into guys i'm so sorry and he's like super apologetic and the couple is kind of like taken aback like they're disappointed they want it but obviously they're not going to force anything they're not going to push it and it's just so funny to me because it's this scene that I think encapsulates a struggle that people have that really when they really want to be seen as open-minded and cool and down with all the stuff that is cool these days and it's just like the worst thing to be like rigid and uptight and saying no to certain experiences and to have these boundaries on your sexuality and to not be fluid and it's like so you know traditional like lame or something and it just makes me think about this topic of being open-minded and what it means and why is it good and why could it be bad and how we can reconcile our attitude about this characteristic called openness or open-mindedness the character from this movie he reminds me of this phrase that this quote that i really like don't be so open-minded that your brain falls out and i think it's just really funny because it makes me think a lot about how we open ourselves up to ideas to a fault it can be very detrimental to individuals and societies if they're too open and I will get political as usual here a bit. This is why we need the balance of uh, left and right because a society that's too open will die, for instance, from disease let in. You know, think about COVID border control and stuff like that. Um, You know, a mind that's too open will be gullible and follow a cult leader to their own demise, right? Because if you're so open-minded, you're susceptible to anything, And I see that happening a lot these days. The kind of people like our character in the movie, like leftist hippie types, are very open, which I admire on one hand. But on the other, there's no critical thinking associated with it. 
And I think that that's necessary when we talk about openness. It has to be accompanied by critical thinking. That's really my thesis of this episode. And it has to be considered against other things. And like the movie demonstrates, we do have hard lines in life and in our minds. There are borders. They're like literal borders, like our skin bordering our, you know, uh, organs and everything else so that things just don't come right into those parts of our body. Um, There are walls around houses and apartments. And these are good things. But we also have doors and windows because it's good to be open at the same time. So it's a balancing act. And I do like to highlight this word, balance. So I'm going to focus on openness today in a lot of different ways, uh, but I'm going to keep coming back to what it must always be paired with, which is generally critical thinking and consideration. So let's go further into openness. I think first as a character trait, just to lay some like psychological groundwork. Basically, in the field of psychology, the most respectable and respected personality test is called the Big Five model. You can look this up online. Uh, The big five personality traits that it measures for are openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism, which form the acronym OCEAN. And this first one, openness to experience, can be uh, broken down into inventive and curious versus consistent and cautious. And this is where we really get the laudable Uh, qualities of being open and it's also what leads by the way to intelligence there's no intelligence on this um, big five scale but the one that is most suggestive of intelligence is being inventive and curious people that seek new experiences try new things are voracious readers like to learn about everything this is what uh, intelligent people usually share in common and this is captured in this trait of openness now i am a person that is very open to experience i pride myself on it and when i took this test i scored a 99 out of 100 on this 99th percentile so i'm more open to experience than 99 percent of the population and i think it holds true with my background being what it is having traveled to you know 80 countries and tried um you know a majority of the different kind of psychotropic substances out there and had a lot of different relationships and different kinds of relationships as well as a lot of different kinds of careers and vocational interests almost to a fault i have uh, an open mind to things and it does make it hard because i never fully focus on one thing but that's a different topic uh, maybe it's not a different topic. maybe it's a very related topic uh, the faults the pitfalls of being so open So it's a thing, right? Now, it's associated with good things, like cool people are open, the artists and the musicians and all the culture that we consume. All of that is driven by this sort of inventive curiosity that creative people have, and we have a lot to thank them for. On the other side, I think we sort of dismiss this consistent, cautious attitude too often but this is the attitude that does build bridges literally (laughs) build houses engineers are consistent and more cautious versus the architects that might design them um doctors 
people that really deal with data, hard data, um, people that deal with facts, you know, like it takes the accountants and the dentists of the world to make things happen. But these guys are tend to be like straight laced, more nerdy and depicted in media, not at all like our hippie character in that movie. And I think it's fair enough. I think it's fun to poke fun at this kind of thing. But obviously, at the same time, we have to really admire and respect people that are consistent. Um, you know, it's said that open people found companies, but the more dutiful people run the companies. So I think that's worth just considering when we think about balance in the world and how we do need both. But this openness to experience, I think, thing, I think it is a little less valued nowadays. Like we don't really hear open-mindedness being thrown around on Twitter anymore. It's kind of a 90s phenomenon when I was growing up. This was like a big deal to be open-minded. And it did usually suggest something like try new things, explore the world, you know, don't just like, don't be religious. Don't like have a fundamental dogmatic attitude about the world. That's kind of what it meant. And I do think it's cool. I still kind of believe that stuff. But nowadays, it's not really lauded. Nowadays, we tend to applaud stuff like an allegiance to a team, our tribalist attitudes politically, for instance. We tend to value um, a strong belief system in any direction. You know, um, I talked last time about radical centrism and to be in the center politically, even though I'm still very left-leaning in almost mo- in basically every way except for wokeness. I think about uh, myself mostly online as a centrist because I do always think that we have to bring in another perspective. And I do that out of openness because actually even the side that I tend to be on feels closed to me. Now, of course, we don't use this word closed, but you know, even with COVID happening right now, like closedness is being more valued close your mouth put a mask over it everywhere lock down close down the the bars and restaurants close down the borders stop letting everybody in not for uh, for the nation's um sense of self like uh actual borders you know boundaries around the country but for this to stop the spread of disease and this is obviously very celebrated um by and large it's a it's obviously a complicated contestable contestable contested topic but it's a very popular opinion to shut things down and close them in order to be safe and cautious so i feel like we are living in that kind of time right now where openness isn't exactly celebrated but it's ironic to me and this is really what i really want to get into here because i'm still seeing people on the left predominantly who still want to think of themselves as open-minded. There's still this this um, attitude from the movie that holds true, that it's cooler to be chilled out and have like a gender fluidity, a sexual fluidity, to be down with everything, to be bisexual, to be, um, you know, pansexual. You know, in, in terms of like sex and gender, openness is extremely encouraged. And yet at the same time, it's really uh, closed to things like criticism or open dialogue, right? And I'm trying to figure out what's going on there. Um, you know, it's not consistent in terms of like our hip, our hippie archetype guy because people that tend to think this way might also be very adamant about only eating a vegan diet. They're not omnivores. They're not pan. <laughs> They're not... Um, 
you know, they're not buy or pan when it comes to food, right? Like you would think an open-minded person would think, oh, wow, dog meat? Well, I am in uh, Southeast Asia. Maybe I'll try it. Like that to me is being open-minded, right? You go into a certain culture and it's very exotic to use a kind of loaded word and they do things differently and you're kind of curious. It's not something that you're going to build into your life per se, but you're you're there. So you're going to try it. That's being open-minded. Walking into a place and be like, oh my gosh, you still eat cows? This is so backwards of you. There's no way I would ever do that. That's not being open, is it? But I think people that do that would consider themselves open. And I think if I was to trace where that openness is, it would be to the information and to the sympathy to be had for animals. So, you know, most vegans and vegetarians, they start their journey off with excessive, I would say, excessive sympathy and compassion for other living things. Now, let's see, let's break this down a little bit. I have to go slower here as I'm thinking this through. Compassion is wonderful. It's a really valuable trait to have. And in our big five ocean um, breakdown, compassion is kind of put in with conscientiousness and agreeableness, you know, Um, people that are agreeable are friendly and compassionate versus critical and rational. Now you can probably guess where I fall on this metric. I'm not very agreeable. I don't get along with everybody. I don't try to get along with everybody and I'm very critical and rational. So I'm not very agreeable. And when I look at like the topic of diet as an example, I just think to myself, what are my values? What are my hardline values? Um, And I would put taste in there. I would put how my body feels, what, what I'm craving. Those are things I value. Now, if my body was responding differently, if I was gaining a bunch of weight or feeling really lethargic all the time, I would investigate that. And I would think maybe I don't need as much gluten or carbs, you know, as my body responding to dairy in a different way, this kind of stuff. And I was a vegetarian for three years at university, mainly for the political reasons, you know, of, uh, you know, managing waste and taking over parts of the planet with, you know, industrial farming. But anyways, (laughs) um, I do appreciate that vegetarians and vegans are open in the sense of having compassion for other things, but that's not actually openness. So I suppose the openness would come from the idea, you know, like you can plant this idea into somebody's mind that it's better to treat animals as people, to to not be a speciesist, you know, to treat all life as earthlings. And this is a sort of belief system that people can be open to. And I don't mean to go too hard against vegetarians and vegans. Some of my best friends are like that and I can respect it. But I know from my own evaluation of all of this stuff that it's not the decision I've come to. And I've come to my decision with a good amount of conviction and belief in how I live. So I think, uh, this is where I'm thinking like people that get into ideological lifestyles have almost opened their mind so much that their brain falls out. Now I cannot, I want to walk that back a bit. I'm not saying that vegans brains have fallen out, fallen out, but I am kind of pointing that way a bit, if you will. 
And I don't know, to me, it's a little nutty. Now, I don't want to like die on that sword. It's not a clip I need taken out of context from this episode of, of my podcast. But if I'm honest, I think some of these kind of ideologically driven lifestyles fit into this category. And I think the trans thing is like that. I think even like environmentalism can be like that, where you get so obsessed with this one idea and you kind of approached it with this idea of openness. Like, you know, it has that association with being cool. It's a leftist political thing. It has its great reasons, obviously, to fight global, you know, climate change, to fight pollution, uh, to save the to save the world. I mean, it's cool to try and save the world, isn't it? I do wonder, actually, these days, if I'm honest. No, it is cool. It is cool to try and make the world a better place. And so people tend to have that as a very baseline intent when they pick up these kind of ideas. But to me, they really do resemble a religious dogma and fervor. You know, these are kind of like religious beliefs that cannot be challenged in a way. You know, like the idea of the patriarchy to feminism. There's this idea that a patriarchy, ill-defined and very uh, ambiguous, makes women's lives worse. And this is a very, like, strongly held belief that is very hard to challenge. If you challenge somebody that has this belief, you're going to be met with the same kind of religious attitude that a Christian would have if you questioned the sanctity of Jesus Christ, let's say. Uh, the same with like um, critical race theory and all this kind of race stuff. This idea of white privilege is like at the very core of it. And if you're white, you have original sin. You have to have guilt for that because your people group are responsible for all these atrocities. Ignoring, for some reason, the global history of atrocity and how it's <laughs> absolutely been manifested in every single people group of all races, including Africans, ignoring all that and ignoring the fact that Western culture is the culture that ended slavery first. Um, but anyways, it's a, it's a funny idea to me because there's so many holes to it, but people hold on to it. They're closed. They've, cl they've been open enough to grab the, inf the, the attitude, the ideology, the, belief system and then they've closed off to criticism and don't want to hear any of it and i actually experienced that a lot in my life where i talk with friends and there's some hot button issue for them that they don't want to talk about and if i you know pry i'm a bad guy i'm the bad guy for doing that because it's clear that this is like a very deeply held belief for that person and why would i you know i must be evil to question that and to poke at it now this is a different point but i think a lot of my provocations a lot of my uh, appetite for controversy and debate does kind of come in my opinion from my openness now dear listener you might wonder if that's really true because i can get very impassioned and strong-willed when i make an argument when i make my opinion clear i obviously am holding ground i have planted my feet for instance on eating meat and that it's okay to eat meat you know i have my own rules about it i don't eat meat every meal at all i don't kill meat but i would i don't feel hypocritical about it i still prefer uh, organic meat coming from a good 
conscientious farm over processed meat in a disgusting factory, I believe still in a reforming factories in agriculture. But I've planned myself firmly on the idea that it's healthy and appropriate for humans to eat meat. I've planted myself that it's, uh, that there is such thing as a biological sex and that gametes are real and that sex differences are obvious, but I'm open-minded. And when I say I'm open-minded with this stuff, you could show me more information about meat eating or gender, uh, dysphoria or gender bending or whatever it is, you know, like I, I'm not closed off from that discussion. I might be a little grumpy to have that discussion because I've heard all of these points. Um, And I feel like a lot of these discussions are circular and almost pointless because it's very rare that people talk at each other when they're having a debate. The classic one is abortion. Like a pro-choice person like me has a very hard time talking to an anti-choice or aka pro-life person. Because that pro-life person has one argument. Life begins at conception. It's murder to kill an embryo, let alone a fetus, let alone, you know, a third trimester child or even an infant. It's murder. And I personally get what they're saying. I've thought long and hard about that topic, as I tend to do on things. And so to me, I would be more willing to have that conversation with them on their level because that's the level they want to be talking. They're not talking about a woman's right to choose. They're not talking about the uh, the the politics of how it affects poor and minority communities worse because these are the communities that are less educated, that have less access to abortion, that are more uh, affected by larger families and children out of wedlock and babies born to, you know, teenage girls that are too young to raise kids and how that girl's life is now, you know, basically ruined from being, (laughs) being given a child too soon, all this kind of stuff, right? A Christian right-wing anti-abortion person does not care about any of that because they think it's murder to end a life once it's been conceived and leftists don't know how to talk to that person. They just think that those Christians are evil because they're racist for keeping black teenage mothers down, you know? So those are totally different conversations. And I find that to be the case with almost every conversation, right? Like if I'm talking about trans stuff and how I actually feel bullied by trans activists, not all trans people, but the activists, bullying me to, you know, put my pronouns everywhere to declare them just because it makes them feel a little better somehow and that I should consider dating people like quote girls with penises and to not be <laughs> to not be like uh have a genital uh fascism or something like this like it's really insane to me like what the, what words are being used in this kind of activist space it's not necessarily all mainstream maybe some of that comes as, comes as news to you guys but it's happening it's happening and you see by and large corporations and western societies kowtowing to it bowing down to these kind of demands you know of letting women into the olympic or sorry letting trans women compete in biological women sporting events right out of something like open-mindedness you know you want to be open you want to have things be inclusive you want to include people by bringing them in that's like an open 
boundary or border to what women's Olympics and women's sports are, right? And I just question that. Like, to me, that does trigger something in me. Something's wrong there because I think we're we're not holding on to critical thinking. We're not just looking at it objectively and rationally. This is what a lot of people call a clown world where we just don't care anymore about facts. We only care about feelings and we don't want to hurt trans people's feelings. Never mind somehow women's feelings in these events, in these sporting events, women's issues like menstruation and contraception. No, now there's this idea that women have to be described as people with vaginas in order to include the 0.02% of women that don't have vaginas. It's a little insane, in my opinion. Now, am I being closed-minded? Am I being closed-minded? I challenge you, dear listener, to accuse me of that. I would say that we have to think again about our foundational principles, the values that we hold most dear. And I, I don't think anybody prioritizes openness as their fundamental value. When I think about my openness to experience, for instance, I value fun. I value curiosity and excitement. So if I go to a new country, if I try a new drug, if I experiment with some other kind of sex acts or relationship style, I'm interested in fun and pushing boundaries and living life to its fullest. I don't do things just to be open. I think that would be stupid, right? I mean, I might jump out of an airplane. I kind of wish I have gone skydiving. I think I might have missed my chance there. Most people that I could imagine doing that with did it around in our early 20s, and I somehow just didn't get into any of those plans. And now I just wonder if it's ever going to happen. But falling and flying through the air is something that I've literally dreamed about countless times. And it's something that I just really, really, I really imagine it a lot to myself. Now, I would love to just jump out of a plane. It's very scary to do it, but I'm open to that experience. But I'm not so open (laughs) that I would do it in any case imaginable. I wouldn't fly up with a really sketchy, dangerous pilot. I wouldn't jump out without a parachute, you know? I would take these kind of obvious precautions to make sure I was being smart and rational and thinking critically about how I did it. It's the same with all the other kind of things I've done in my life regarding experience. I'm not going to take literally any pill that just some random person hands to me. I'm going to think, who is this person? What is the context I'm dealing with? What situation am I in? Who else is doing this? Why are they doing this? There's all these kind of considerations to make, right? But all that said, I'm propelled by my interest in having fun. I don't have a strong uh, threshold for fear and danger. So I'm willing to push those boundaries. I'm not that cautious of a person, fundamentally speaking. So it's a little odd for somebody like me to be accused of being closed or closed-minded. Because again, like I keep talking, for instance, about the trans thing, because it's an ongoing discussion. And my mind isn't fully formed on the topic. I'm still open to information. And I resent, most of all, being told 
being told what to think without being given the proper information and the proper arguments. And so I have to just say, it's very ironic, the people that profess to be the most open are often the most closed. And I do point those fingers back at me too. And this is why I'm really thinking about it these days is because I do find myself in conversations where I'm accused, even lightheartedly accused, of being closed. Like, Keith, why don't you just open your mind to other possibilities that you're not necessarily right about everything? And it's a really valid point. It is a valid point, dear listener, that I might not be right about everything. And I do try and speak my mind with humility and modesty because it's true. I might not be right about eating meat. I actually do uh, look forward to lab-grown meat where I can eat what is essentially exactly a, a burger made of actual cells of a cow without actually growing and slaughtering and feeding a cow. So that's going to be a great day when that becomes affordable for all of us to do. It's still meat, but it's there's no suffering involved. There's no farm involved. So like, I'm very open to that kind of stuff, right? Because like, when I think about eating meat, I think about the fundamental principles are like the nutrition, the protein that is like exponentially higher per square, whatever than anything else. Legumes, tofu, like meat is way more protein rich. For instance, um, I think about the taste. I think about the, uh, their carnivorous nature that I do feel that I'm in touch with. Like I feel like a hunter devouring kill and that is satisfying in a very primal way to me. And that's okay. I think it's something that humans should hold on to. It's okay to be at the top of a food chain, to be an apex predator. Like, I think that's good. I don't think that's bad. I don't judge that as evil. I've seen lions rip up a carcass. It's not evil. It's life. And I question people that are disturbed by that, that quite that have closed their minds to the reality of being human in that way, who think, oh, we have evolved past that. We don't need teeth anymore. I disagree with that. But again, it's an open dialogue. It should remain open. And uh, I just, I, I don't know. I guess when I'm talking about open-mindedness, I'm talking about really vibrant public discussion and pursuing the things that we can all agree on are our base interests. So let's get into those. For me, as an example, freedom is probably my most important value. And in terms of morals, like freedom followed by fairness are my two favorite things. I don't so much care about um, redu reducing harm, though I do care about it, just not as much as like most liberals or most leftists. I don't care about... Um, the sanctity of institutions and hierarchies the way that right-wing people do. But I care a lot about freedom. So in this whole COVID thing, like I have that as a master value and I will sacrifice it when it really makes sense for the greater good for our, for our humanity to flourish. So when I look at COVID, when it first happened, of course I was like pretty freaked out like everybody, but I was less freaked out because I always thought if this isn't like, a, 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 a gas that floats through the air and turns people's skin inside out, if it's not something like so bad like that, 
let's temper our reaction to this. Let's not be terrified by this virus. But we were terrified. Uh, we locked down borders. We quarantined in our houses. We closed down society. We closed down the economy, by and large. It was the biggest transfer of wealth in history from the working and middle classes to the upper class, the ownership class. This cannot be understated. I do want to slip that in. That's a political message for our classists out there. This whole COVID pandemic reaction has been absolutely destructive on the middle and working classes to the benefit of the ownership classes. So just take that for what it's worth. And what are we being told to do? We're being told to wear a mask everywhere we go, to limit our travel, to limit our freedom of movement, to not congregate with more than certain people, to not go to our bars and pubs, our public spaces, to distance, to not hug each other in the beginning. All of these things are really antithetical to my sense of freedom. And they are the exact opposite of openness, right? Now, again, that could be appropriate. I'm not some absolutist fetishist of freedom and openness to stand up for it even in the face of the plague or some you know, future virus or disease that literally does kill half the population or is so dangerous that even an extremely healthy individual by the mere breathing of air can die within a day. Like th we can imagine that sort of thing, right? And if that was there, of course I would be <laughs> extremely careful and agree to everything that, you know, our governments had to do to protect people. And I'm still willing to, even though that our, our current virus is nothing even close to that kind of problem, not even close. It's still something that I'm happy to help but at what cost? And for me, that cost is freedom. And freedom can be extremely minuscule. The freedom to walk out of your door without anything in your hands or on your face, to not have to remember your mask, to not have to walk into a shop that's big, like a Costco or like a big mall, wearing a mask on my face. I do wear a mask on my face because I don't want COVID and I can accept public etiquette. So once it became normalized once we hit this tipping point that it was more normal to wear a mask than to not wear a mask which did take some time i'm going to go along with that but i don't want to be told that i'm evil for not doing it i don't want to be told that it's mandatory that we always have to wear a mask from walking to our seat at a restaurant taking it off eating putting it back on and walking to the bathroom like it doesn't make any sense right so i think reasonable people can disagree not everybody prioritizes freedom the way i do right some people prioritize fairness more or uh, la uh, reducing harm more. So obviously people that propose mask wearing all the time are prioritizing reducing harm to people, generally speaking. It's hard to specify who they're even talking about. Grandparents are often mentioned as who we're protecting. Uh, people with um, you know reduced immunity and lower... Uh, health with more health risks you know we're protecting these people the frontline people and nurses like nurses and doctors we're protecting them and on and on so every topic can be addressed like this and again it's an open dialogue that i'm still engaged in but i guess my point is that i have certain values that i do believe in and freedom is one truth and beauty are others
So for me, like as an artist, I'm open to different styles of art in the field of fine arts, but I am really disturbed by trash aesthetics. I'm really put off by junk on a gallery floor, spray painted haphazardly with wires falling around and being told that this is fine art. I'm offended by it because it's ugly. And I know that the point of it is to challenge the idea that it, does art have to be beautiful? For me, kind of. It has to at least be interesting. And maybe I just don't find that interesting. Maybe I'm just, it's over my head. I uh, am open to that idea that I don't get everything. But I know what my values regarding art are. And it has to be aesthetically pleasing to me. So I really... Uh, I really applaud and uh, admire the masters, the painters from the Renaissance who were such perfect craftsmen at painting and who could imagine a scene depicting mercantilism or some sort of religious idea and could just paint it so perfectly. I'm impressed by it because it moves me how well they've done it and how uh, exact their vision is to express this idea. That's art. And when I take photographs, I'm really aiming at something like that. I'm trying to distill what I'm looking at into a pure form, an aesthetically formal version of an emotion that I'm having, like a bird flying through the sky or a perfectly designed architectural structure built to house and protect humanities, you know? So I have this underlying, you know, base uh, interest of beauty and with truth like i just value truth the most in regard to education in regard to thinking i want to get to the truth and i'm not an expert in science for instance or so many topics so i have to pursue truth i have to listen to who i think is being truthful who is sticking to facts how are these facts measured right and this is where we get into something really interesting because we have the canon of Western education being questioned at the moment, largely by critical race theory, who says something like mathematics is, is an invention of the white patriarchy, which is already ironic given that it comes from uh, Arabia in terms of um, numbers, you know, India as well. Like so much of mathematics is a global effort. Um, same with the alphabet, you know, speaking this language is like colonialist and that's literally true in places like South Africa, but it also happens to be a solid bedrock upon which to build a functional society when we all speak the same language. I'm reminded of the biblical story of the Tower of Babel in which nobody could speak the same language, and so they aimed to build a uh, a tower up to heaven, this story goes, and God give them, gave them all different languages so that they couldn't communicate, and then it crumbled. But if we all spoke the same language, we could build something really tall, really successful. So mathematics, as, a, as an easy example, this is like a universal language that everyone in the world can learn. But it's being challenged as racist because um, <laughs> some people somehow think that this is just uh, too rigid and um, patriarchal of a system to enforce 
on black kids going to school and getting poor grades in math. It's because math itself is racist. Now, this is an insane argument, but it is a real one. And I just think that, <laughs> look, I'm open to the idea that the education system is systemically disadvantaging certain people. I can see the evidence of that. And the question is why and how. And I'm not just going to jump to racism because that's close-minded to have this ideology that you just force into every argument as the answer. I don't agree. You know, it's complicated. The reason that black students might do worse is very complicated sociologically. And it's not because math is racist. Now, if there was an SAT question that was talking about, you know, um, what a yacht is and what a schooner is or what a viola is. And like, maybe these are cultural things that not everybody knows. Okay. Maybe this, there's room there to think maybe this isn't the most universal kind of question if we're testing intelligence, but to say that things are the way they are because of sexism, racism, transphobia, Islamophobia, these kind of things, it's not being open-minded. You're not being open-minded. You're being overly compassionate for a perceived a victim, a victimized group, not even people, but a group. And this is a very hard argument to make, you know? And I just have to say to my my peeps who do think this way, who really do see the world through these kind of like narrow lenses of critique, what is the baseline goal here? What is what is your baseline principle if it's not freedom or truth or beauty? Is it reducing harm? Is it just making sure that everybody is protected? I think in socialist circles, this is the fundamental value that we can't have such thing as free speech until everybody has their basic human needs met. So it's like all about this harm reduction. And I think that this is the bedrock of political debate that certain people just see the world differently and that it's very hard for me to engage socially and even in a civilization with people that prioritize reducing harm for every single person over everything else. And the irony there is that people are willing to kill in order to re reduce harm. It doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even make sense. Kill the rich so that the homeless people aren't hurt. Like, does that make sense? Like if you, I mean, you guys throw the same words. I'm sorry to talk so broadly and now pointing fingers and all this. But the people that say that are the same people who like find their own little, they find loopholes everywhere. Like um, Nazis are bad because they genocide the people. So we have to genocide them, right? Or, uh, you know, I just got tired. <laughs> I just got tired thinking about this. Um, I'm not going to go down there. I know that it can be a little bit annoying if I just rant about this stuff. But all this to say that I think it's really interesting to consider what it means to be open-minded. And it's not a virtue unto itself, in my opinion, the way that freedom, beauty, and truth are. I can value peace and honesty and love more than I can just value open-mindedness per se. Because open being open-minded is... It's not just for Socrates and Einstein. It's also for a cult follower who walks off a cliff following their guru. It's also for 
anti-vaxxers who won't take something into their body because they have a, a mindset associated with crystals and horoscopes, you know, like these kind of ideas and apologies to my friends that do like crystals and horoscopes, these kind of ideas fall into the minds that are open and they just infest them. So you can be open to parasitic, dangerous ideas if you're too open-minded. You can't really be, you can't really fall prey to such things if you're only pursuing truth or beauty or peace or love. So it's a little different. And I guess I just think we're all in the same boat that we might have varying degrees of open-mindedness, but we all fall prey to something when we, uh, when we act as if we're being open. We fall prey to naivete. We fall prey to lies, you know, like statistics that are made up, which are very popular right now. Um, I'm thinking of two as prime examples, but I'm not going to mention them now. Uh, we fall prey to um, losing what our true values are. And it's this phrase, stand for something or you'll fall for anything. And so I guess I just urge you, dear listeners, to consider what you do stand for. And if you really do stand for reducing harm for the animal kingdom, that's something. It's not my thing, but if it's your thing, good. Be vegetarian. Stand up for animals. Fair enough. But have the foundational principle of compassion, I suppose, if that's your highest value. And use it properly. A truly compassionate person would not break into a lab and kill doctors in order to free monkeys. A truly compassionate person wouldn't offend the the eyes of vulnerable people by showing them the ghastly inner workings of slaughterhouses. You know, if you're truly compassionate, be consistent. Don't be hypocritical. Don't be only compassionate for animals. Be compassionate, period, I suppose. I'm looking forward to my conversations in real life with you guys about these topics. I'm curious what your fundamental values are. I hope that we have some in common because I do think that's how society works. Uh, the golden rule, as an example, um, you know, some amount of uh, res- mutual respect, uh, do unto others as they would do unto you, and also live and let live. And these really go a long way. And I just find those kind of values trampled on by people who claim goodwill. And I just, I'm suspicious. I'm suspicious. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. I don't know if I said everything I want about open-mindedness. I did another episode like this um, last night, but my audio quality was very bad. And uh, I think I did make some good points in that one, but oh well. Not everything can be said in an hour, right? So I'll leave it there and we'll all pick this up again in the future on to other topics and into real life. Until next time, ciao.